0: Dan Evans, I'm joined as always by him, Nathan Cush. Yep. What's happening, Nathan? Not much. We're in London. Yeah. First ever away. Yeah, it's our first ever uh, sort of away podcast, our first ever podcast out of Wales. Hey! Um, paid for by you, the taxpayer. Um, <laughs> but we're incredibly privileged today to be joined by Mike Jackson and Gethin Roberts, two of the founders of Lesbians and Gay Support the Miners, one of the most incredible gestures of solidarity in my view in the 20th century, and something which was immortalised in the 2014 film pride. Gethin and Mike, welcome. Thanks so much for coming. Thank
1: you. Well, Thank you
0: yeah. Thanks so much for letting us here. Oh yeah. Thanks for coming. Thanks so much for letting us use your flat to record. Yeah. No, <laughs> Mike didn't
1: have that much to travel. <laughs> no, it's and, a real honour. And just for kind of item purposes for the listeners, I'm Mike and I've got the Lancashire accent.
2: And I'm guessing and I've got a kind of funny accent that varies between... <laughs> North Wales and South East England. If you just
3: like really make the distinctive difference between two, it seems to have more guests on. Then so
0: like. <laughs> <laughs> I can't watch Pride or Billy Elliot or like brass even or anything about that era um, without balling my eyes up. So I've said off air that I'll try not to cry, but Mike's been kind enough to give me some <laughs> <laughs> some kitchen roll just in case I do break in the sauce. Uh, in which case, Nathan's going to take over. And um,
3: I'll weep for you.
0: Yeah. <laughs> All right. So one of the great strengths of the movie, I think, is that it definitely weaves together. The two locations you know primarily London and South Wales and sort of two separate struggles you know the, and experiences that of gay men and lesbians in London and that of the miners in South Wales and it sort of brings them together that's I guess the whole point is it the message of solidarity but as we've said we're not actually that skillful in weaving together any form of narrative so I thought we would first talk about your own experiences perhaps of you know, in the LGBT movement of being gay in in the UK and in, in the 80s or earlier and maybe the development of the LGBT movement. I know I'm asking a lot here, but it's just um, because for myself and I think a lot of our, our listeners, I wouldn't say I'm ignorant of uh, LGBT politics, but, I mean, certainly the, the development of it over the years, I mean, because we're living in an era where I think, think some things are taken for granted. Maybe their roots in sort of struggle in politics are maybe mm. forgotten. So I'm rambling a bit. So if you want to, let's just, so,
2: yeah. Um,
1: so I was, I was born in 1954 So at the age of 13, when I was an adolescent, obviously, and I already started to kind of know something about my sexuality, that's when the 1967 Sexual Offences Act came in, which I really wasn't that aware of. But when you think about it, what that act did is it decriminalised male homosexuality. So another way of saying that is prior to 1967, when I was 13, uh, it was simply illegal to be a homosexual man. That's like making, I don't know, people with red hair illegal. It, it, it's a ridiculous concept. I grew up in a northern industrial working class town, Accrington in Lancashire. I wasn't surrounded by any kind of intellectual currents or, or anything. Uh, dad died when I was a little boy. Uh, my mum was a single parent. She's having to bring up me and my sister. She could read and write, but she had a school exemption leaving certificate at the age of 14. So it wasn't a very educated and it certainly wasn't a very kind of liberal in that sense background. And I absorbed every last. Ounce of the homophobic narrative that was coming from the local people, from the churches, from the schools, from the government, from the courts, from the police, you name it. Uh, so I managed to, to absorb the mad, the sad and the bad simultaneously. So I wasn't a very happy teenager. And in fact, I went to the GP twice to see if I could uh, get this homosexuality this evilness this mental illness this sin uh, driven out of me but fortunately I was so paranoid that uh, I actually got into the into the uh, consortium room and I just went to the doctor I I've I've got to cold <laughs> which in retrospect thank God because in those days ECT was often used as a, as a so-called uh, cure for, Uh, things like that Uh, ECT for people who don't know it is electrocompulsive therapy so basically they just electrocute this thing out of you of course it didn't work and it's now been made illegal in lots of places I'm not sure if it's illegal in Britain I think there's
2: still a campaign to make it illegal yeah
1: yeah I think it's still
2: used in in Britain
1: Uh, so thank god you know that I didn't go through through that so when I came out six years later, uh, which we'll come back to later, so I'm going to let Gethin say what his early days, are. Oh, now, but when I came out six years later, I didn't come out, I exploded because I realised actually there's nothing wrong with me. What was wrong was homophobia. Over to you, Gethin.
2: Right, okay, so I was brought up in Holyhead and then in Bethesda. Um, my father was a fireman in Hollyhead. my mother initially was a housewife and then they split up and and she went to teacher training college in Bangor, became a teacher and then shortly after becoming a teacher she um, moved to Kent and we moved shortly afterwards so I then spent my kind of early teens to late teens dividing my time between Kent and, and Holyhead when my father was still there and I suppose I started being aware of being gay when I was 12, 13 or whatever. My older brother was gay and he came out first rather dramatically he dyed his hair and he painted his fingernails green and he disappeared with, with, off the face of the earth and I had to track him down I actually rang up uh, Lesbian and Gay Switchboard and said do you know where my brother is and they said what's his name and I said it's Davy Roberts and I said oh yeah he's in the, he's in the North London Gay Centre in Perth Road so I turned up there early one morning and banged on the door to reunite him with his family and we went to Patisserie Valerie in Old Compton Street <laughs> at Croissants and I persuaded him that he really shouldn't kind of cut himself off I think I must have been about 14 at the time. Tracking down your older brother, like... Yeah. <laughs> so he, he was a kind of bad role model for me, really. He kind of put me off coming out for a while because I thought it involved painting your fingernails green and all the rest of it. But eventually I, I kind of recognised that I was gay and I started getting involved in campaigning around gay issues. I was involved in the Labour Party. I was involved in Friends of the Earth. I was involved in Troops Out movements. I was involved in Rock Against Racism and all the rest of it. And then belatedly I added gay activism to that kind of mix. Um, so the first things that I got involved in, I guess, were the um, the campaign around W.H. Smith's and stocking gay news. So there was, a, by this time, there was a gay, a fortnightly gay paper, kind of tabloid-style gay paper, which had grown out of GLF. It had grown out of the, the media collective of GLF. Um, was that Gay Capital? No, it was Gay News, oh, right. originally. Um, capital Gay came along oh, later. And it was available through... Lefty bookshops and very limited distribution. Um, I used to buy my copy regularly from some little newsstand on Ferry Road, where I thought nobody'd ever see me, <laughs> um, <laughs> which nobody ever did. Uh, so I, I built up my confidence, start buying it more openly, and then to start campaigning for it to be stocked in W. H. Smiths, which at that time had a stranglehold over uh, news distribution, which I think still largely does. So they completely refused to stop Gay News on the grounds it was kind of immoral and all the rest of it. So part of that campaign was obviously picketing branches of, of Gay News. So I remember picketing the uh, W. A. Smith's branch in, in Notting Hill at one point. Um, but also it was going into shops, picking up an armful of newspapers and magazines, could be you know anything, Women's Realm, Farmer's Weekly, make a big pile of stuff, wait till they run it through the till and then ask them gay news as well and when they said no you'd say in that case I don't want any of that lot either and walk out <laughs> leaving them to kind of <laughs> unpick the mess that you just made Poor staff. um yes yeah, so it wasn't very fair to the staff but uh, hey, and I, I guess that was the time when there was quite a lot of stuff ha- beginning to happen about challenging employment law so at that time it was perfectly legal to sack somebody for being gay so people were beginning to wear gay badges to work Julian Howes turned up to work. He worked for London Transport at the time. He, t- he turned up in the um, the women's uniform for London Transport, which <laughs> didn't go down too well. Um, so he was sacked. Uh, Johnny Whitehead, who was ended up founding the uh, Trans Higgins Trust, he, he was sacked from his job at British Home Stores uh, for wearing a gay badge. Um, and there were a whole series of people who who um, started taking employers to to court. So I remember going on pickets around those sorts of things then eventually I went to university as a mature student um, in the days when you could be a mature student at the ripe old age of 23 Mm -hmm. Um, so I went to Leeds University (laughs) and and that I mean Leeds was probably the last place where GLF was a kind of living breathing thing GLF had pretty much died out died out at that point the people involved haven't they're still alive and still active so there's a moment there's a, a working group going on to start planning for the 50th anniversary of GLF and some of the original GLF founders like uh, Stuart Feather and Andrew Lumsden still very active still very involved in um, activism now and planning for the 50th anniversary of GLF and I've lost track of what I was saying Uh, no he went to Leeds so I went to Leeds and that was the kind of tail end of of GLF there Uh, so I had great three years there and again combining Gay activism with anti-fascist stuff. It was a time when National Fronts were quite active. And then after that, I ended up in London, which I guess was 1981, a few years before the miners' strike.
0: Mike, when did you come to London then?
1: Well, so I left school at 16. I had an odd career for a a working class lad from an industrial town, or maybe not actually, because actually I always knew I wanted to be a gardener. And there ain't much gardening in and I can tell you that. <laughs> not many plants in Akrington. The tallest trees don't get more than about twenty five feet high because it's about but something about three hundred feet above sea level, but it's in the pennines and the late spring frost just hard prune all the the trees. This it's not
2: gardeners weekly. I know, think? I know it's not no, gardeners weekly. I want <laughs> to say <laughs> <into gardeners laughs> <really laughs> really
3: it's Yeah, gardeners yeah.
1: Anyway, to cut a long story short I ended up uh, getting a student position at Kew Gardens in London well, Richmond, which is very near to London I was 19 Uh, I'd worked for three years up to to then and I started reading Time Out magazine which is still going and in it, there was this tiny little one centimetre classified advert gay, lonely call gay switchboard and I would read this and again, the paranoia was such that I'd be reading it up on the tube just hoping that the two people either side of me couldn't somehow see exactly on this page what I was looking at and leap up and go, ha-ha, you're homosexual, you <laughs> are. Uh, And it took me weeks and weeks and weeks, and I had to find an isolated telephone box so that no, none of the... It's very similar story to get in a sense, uh, so that none of the other students w- would happen to... St- pass by and spring the door of the telephone box open and go, ha ah, your phone engaged switchboard <laughs> And I remember with a very broad Lancashire accent, it took several phone calls to switchboard because I'd be saying things like I know you don't think there's anything wrong with it, but I think there's a lot wrong with it until eventually the penny dropped. And I just so actually maybe they're right maybe there's nothing wrong with being gay. And that's what I meant about, I then turned from zero to 110 miles an hour, do you know what I mean? Because the gay switchboard in a sense was, this was 1973. So gay switchboard was barely more than a year, two Mm -hmm. years old. And a lot of those people who were volunteers on it would have come from a fairly radical GLF background. And we'll talk about that later. But they weren't, They their approach wasn't to just counsel, like, they're there, it, it, you'll get better, as it were, do you know what I mean? But it was actually an analysis. It's no, there is nothing wrong with you, what's wrong for you is homophobia. And that, you've got to make the distinction that you're fine, being gay is fine, what's wrong is it prejudice and oppression around it. And that was just like, that was an amazing epiphany for me, because... Nobody ever kind of t- explained anything like that. And what fell into place for me was all oppression. Once I realized I was oppressed, I realized what the nature was. So I just ended up thinking, wow, this must be the same for women. This must be the same for black people, blah, blah, blah. So it was an amazing experience for me really, because I, I learned so much so quickly as time went by i was very disappointed though to find actually this was not the case for all gay men by a long chunk because i then discovered that the misogynistic gay men racist gay men etc etc so you know I, i'm very i was very fortunate that the, the the mechanism of coming out for me was through the gay switchboard and because of that they allowed me to come out with a political analysis of who I was and what my position was in society. So I then went skipping around all the gay bars in London. This is a 19-year-old. I'm I'm still illegal, by the way, don't forget, because although the 67 Act decriminalised homosexuality, it it only decriminalised it for men 21 years and older. So I'm two years still underage. And boy, did I like breaking the law in that special (laughs) way. Um, So I was running around, skipping around, simultaneously joyful that I could have rampant sex, I could be who I was, I could enjoy it guilt-free and also furious about what had happened to me. And, you know, I then became this mad thing covered in badges, all the world had to know about it, my poor old family had to know about it. And I mean they hadn't got the equipment to to listen to all this stuff that I was delivering yeah. to them. They just went, yes Michael, yes Michael, yes Michael. <laughs> uh, but they did eventually completely accept it. Um, and then on the strength of that, I also g- got into university on the strength of my Q diploma, again as a mature student, uh, aged this time, 21. <laughs> uh, and it's interesting, I've forgotten that about Gethin, you were 23, did
2: you say? Yeah, yeah. I, got these, a, I get in on the basis of my trade union activities and Labour Party activities and other
1: Well, I was just going to say, these were very, very different days politically, yeah. because there was a consensus amongst the ruling elite including the Tories to some extent, still in that post-war consensus from 1945 right through to Thatcher in 79, that working class kids should be given opportunity. And I'm sure that, I'm speaking with Gethin here, that the same as me, we were given an opportunity. I didn't have any A-levels, but... You know that they let me into Keele University on the strength of me getting my Q diploma. They knew that you know that's what I wanted to do, and so there was this general willingness to to offer working class kids opportunity, and Thatcherism and what followed destroyed all that. And I to this day would love to pay my taxes willingly to allow people to go to university because an uneducated society is a frightened. Ignorant society—I'll get on my soapbox sort of in a minute. <laughs> Whereas an educated society is a peaceful society, and that is worth every fucking penny. Sorry about that. Um, you know, and I, yes, I love paying taxes for that kind of thing, and I'd be very happy to see my taxes go up because if that means a more peaceful society, a society that doesn't have racism, a society where people are happier and more content with themselves, then by God, that's a cheap—that's a cheap outcome. That is. Yeah. So, yeah, let's pay our taxes and get that
0: further education available to everybody the point of use. What strikes me about both of your experiences is the, the furtiveness of it all and the fact you're you're literally oh. sneaking around and, you know, you, you, Geth, you said you're reading like Gay Capital and Micro Access and Gay Switchboard. Firstly, it's just it's so brave and dangerous. Let's face it, as it must be be such a hard way to, to live, to be sort of sneaking around. It's very
1: destructive though. You yeah, say you say of, brave yeah. but it, it makes you feel horrible.
0: Yeah. Because you're
1: lying yeah. all the time. And you know yeah. you're lying. And I and I wasn't brought up to be a dishonest person. Do you know I mean and this one part of me I just felt so bad about all the time. This furtiveness, as you say. So I don't know. It's kind of you to say brave.
2: But- I mean, if people who were brave were that kind of generation, a little bit a little bit older than us who kind of, you know, set up GLF and did all of that really amazing campaigning work because they kind of laid the grounds for sure. people like us and I had a very similar kind of epiphany in terms of understanding um, self-oppression but mine wasn't through Switchboard it was through a, a pamphlet that had been written by two of the GLF members with downcast gaze aspects of homosexual self-oppression and that just kind of in the space of half an hour of reading it it's your biography it completely changed my life. Yeah. You know, completely changed my understanding yeah. of who I was and politics um, and the rest of it. Um, and I remember that moment very, very clearly. Just reading that pamphlet late at night one night, and suddenly everything fell into place. Incredible. Um And then, uh, just like Mike, I went into that badge wearing phase mm-hmm. where yeah. you know I wouldn't go out without my gays against gods badge <laughs> and uh, uh, how dare you presume I'm a heterosexual? <laughs> uh, <put> <laughs> gays against fucking queer. And, uh, fucking <laughs> yeah, gay is good. I mean. I think that actually that generation of people, I mean, you know, those people 10 years older than us yes. up to people a few years younger than us who were very much that kind of in-your-face badge-wearing thing, did more to change society's views of homosexuality, did more to achieve gay liberation than anything else. Because, I, I mean, I think it was it was very much in-your-face, but it was so valuable in terms of making people aware that yeah. gays were not these kind of shadowy characters, in, yeah. you know, Trilby Hat, pulled down over the face and the coat collar, turned yeah. up sneaking around going into public but, toilets and <coughs> stuff. I mean, we did go into public <laughs> toilets. And had some good times there, but... Uh, <laughs> that wasn't all there was to
1: us. There's, I, mean, I the, think I think you're right, Catherine. So in a sense, maybe what you're saying is... It wasn't a narrative for gay liberation that was having the impact. It was our very visibility. It was being being out was the most significant thing that you could do. Yes. Just saying, "Hey, everybody, I am gay." Get over it. Yes. Yeah, that 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 was more powerful than anything, you know. And over the years, I mean, I've met kind of more working class people who men who've, who have chatted with who have been strangers in pubs. You know, and they said, well, I've never met a queer before. You know, and they'll use the word queer. And there's no way I would have dreamed of correcting their language. What a pompous, arrogant thing that would have been. And also, how completely wrong. Because actually, these guys were saying, I've never met a out queer before. So, this is amazing. I am, so let's talk. And then, almost inevitably, almost every single time, within minutes... All that prejudice is gone. Absolutely gone. Because they were educated to think that we ate children for breakfast, yeah. and we had two heads and this, that and the other, and they realised actually it was sort of bullshit. Yeah, And we don't like being hateful. People don't like prejudices, e- even their own. And that's why those prejudices will just melt within minutes often. Uh, that was my experience. You, you'd always get a tiny number, mm-hmm. and I say this over and over again, who are toxically homophobic. Yeah. And not a single time I ever met one of those men and I've just thought, hmm, why is this eating you up? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. if you are a happy, healthy hetero, like all oh my happy, healthy hetero friends, they don't give a damn about my sexuality. Why would they do? You know what I mean, it's, that's, <laughs> that's just me. So if this thing is eating you up so much... What's the problem, darling? What, wasn't there, um, <laughs> Do you want to tell me? <laughs> especially in the eighties, uh,
3: um, you spoke about um, you know being anti-fascist earlier, but within the fascist scene as well, it was like um, a place where gay people could hide. Um, which was I, I, found, I read that the other day. I thought it was amazing that because um, it lent itself to such a like, kind of uh, amplified masculinity that it was it was easy to kind of like
0: hide within that. We'll talk about if if it's all right with you guys. Just briefly talk about. I guess worldwide gay politics because chronologically, it's both your experiences. I and mean, the the seventies. So the Stonewall riots in the US, I think six was nine sixty nine. Yeah, I think that's probably useful for us or for the listeners to because it's certainly something I just didn't know about um, shamefully until relatively recently. Um, I went to is it Soho in New York, isn't it? And people said that's the Stonewall. And what would happen? There was um, as you said previously. Gay people were sort of sneaking around, um, and then being oppressed and beaten up by cops. And then cops raided this bar, I think called the Stone the Stonewall, the Stonewall yeah. Inn, Stone Wall in, which was being populated by gay men, many uh, black gay men, and they started r- violently arresting gay people. And then the the punters and people outside all the gay men just. Just fall back. Yeah, it wasn't basically. just gay, man. Yeah, it was, was largely large large tr- trans-sex, large trans- 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 yeah. 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 I'm
3: not sure if I'm wrong with this. Um, we could cut it out, I guess, fam. Was it um, the day oh, like a, an icon, gay icon, died? Oh, am I mixing that with something
1: else? I think you're mixing oh, up so maybe party milk,
3: maybe. No, 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 it was like... Um, oh, who played? It was in The Wizard of Oz. It was... Judy Garland. Judy Garland. Yeah, so it was... I think I, maybe it's just a, a pub some uh, bar somewhere, and it was the day Julie Garden um, died, and there was like mourning in Cape uh, clubs. And then um, I don't think the police were aware of it at the time, so as they went to rush in and like, you know, cause trouble, they just confronted immediately by like well I've like, not heard I that that's a great right, story <laughs> yeah <laughs> honestly, and it's, 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 it's threat? it was people who on
1: something you believe it so
2: we adopt it as a founding yeah. myth in the yeah. front
1: <laughs> can I just correct you with one, one thing yes of course um there were things happening in, in, yeah. in the states before '69. Yeah, this absolutely. is often yeah, yeah. this is this is often what happens that that, that history. There was nothing before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as if nothing before. And it was the same in in Britain. Uh, um, Gethin's better at history than me, so I'm going to pass over to him to talk about Harry Hay and the Mattachine Society
2: in the states. Right. So I mean, even before that, I guess there'd been various kind of. Um, gay liberation movements beforehand, most famously in Germany, um, Hirschfield and so forth. But in the UK, there had been attempts by people like Edward Carpenter to to get um, legal equality for gay people or some kind of recognition for gay people. And a lot of that, I guess, you can trace back to people like Walt Whitman in the States. Mm -hmm. So there was that kind of connection from, well, actually, I think from the French Revolution to Walt Whitman to... Edward Carpenter, and then through to people like Harry Hay. So, as Mike was saying, in the forties, he set up the Mattachine Society. Again, he was a communist. Yeah, a communist. <laughs> um, he, he was uh, an environmentalist. He, he campaigned for Native American rights. So he was somebody who kind of really understood the the need to build those connections and ha- how different kinds of oppression were fundamentally connected. So the Latin society had, had been established. There were obviously gay bars. There were there was an underground gay scene, and in New York, New York particularly, there were a whole series of gay bars who effectively were paying um, protection money to the police. And I think a lot of what happened at Stonewall was just kind of a, you know, we're really fed up with this. We're fed up with your crap. We're fed up with yeah. paying you protection money. And it was mainly the kind of um, black and Latino trans people who fought, who fought back mm. from that kind of initial explosion at stonewall the stonewall riots which went on for several days it wasn't just like 10 minutes
1: and it was it was fierce wasn't it yeah I mean, they would yeah. make barricades they'd overturn vehicles set things on fire i mean i think that well the, the world was astonished by this they'd always seen gay men yeah. uh, well uh, although it wasn't gay men it was largely uh, trans people and as, as getting said people of color but they'd always seen our community as a kind of weak, feeble. Mm, yeah. And to see that fury, on least, yeah. I think, took, took everybody by surprise.
2: So that then led to to the people meeting, founding the Gay Liberation Front, and hundreds and hundreds of people suddenly coming out, getting involved, uh, really angry, really pissed off, um, and really beginning to think about, you know, what was it that was co- caused, you know, what were the roots of oppression? Um, and, of course, it was, it was very much influenced by... Uh, the Black Liberation Movement, by Women's Liberation Movement, people were aware of these kind of ideas and these things happening in other uh, oppressed groups. Because that was all what was happening. It at was all happening time, at the same time. time. Yeah.
0: The
1: 60s Revolution. Yeah.
0: I read that the GLF were speaking at Black Panther rallies, had presence in the Black Panthers. That's right. And yes. Like that. Yeah.
2: I mean, there were attempts to build links. I mean, some of the Black Panthers were extremely antagonistic; others were mm-hmm. r- rather more. Open um, and certainly with women, women's liberation movements. I mean, there were attempts for gay men to to work <laughs> to work with um, women's liber- liberation groups. So that was picked up very quickly by a couple of LSE students who were um, in New York at the time, and they brought that idea back and, and set up GLF with a, a meeting at um, at the London School of Economics, uh, which I guess was nineteen. 19- Seventy. Yeah. yeah.
1: Was Nigel Young at that meet? I think he was.
2: Uh, Nigel Young was who st- was one of the members of uh, LJSM. He, he was a student at LSE at the time. I think. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I pretty w- so Nigel Young isn't characterised in in the movie mm.
2: Pride. He's actually uh, Jonathan's real time, lo- real life lover. Oh They've right. been together since just before. In yeah. Force and yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so
1: the Jonathan who's uh, uh, used to go out with you apparently to the, <laughs> uh, the, uh, with the getting character so that's not actually true. Uh, oh, Jonathan's r- r- lover, Jonathan played by Dominic West in, yeah. in the movie, uh, his lover was Nigel. Nigel was actually a student at LSC during that time, and I'm pretty sure he went to the inaugural meeting of GLF, yeah. So, there's a bit of pedigree, in yeah. There. And in Britain, you know, we've got similar things. There's a man who really needs to be kind of known now, a man called Alan Horsfall, who was a working-class man from, I think it was Nelson in Lancashire. Uh, And he'd been a Labour councillor in the 1960s, I think it was. And he became a founder member of the North West Campaign for Homosexual Law Reform, which started out way back in the 60s, I yeah. think it was. Again, so you have to remember that it was illegal to be gay. So if anybody campaigned for homosexual law reform, you're almost putting your neck on yeah, the line yeah. And you're declaring yourself, in a sense. And he was living in a miner's cottage in Atherton, which is a mining community back then. And basically, he was campaigning... He used his home address as the mailing address for the group, so he really exposed himself. He got no negative repercussions. uh, And part of his campaigning was to lobby the trade unions to kind of say this is an an issue that you need to be aware of because there are homosexuals everywhere. And that included the National Union of Mine Workers, who basically were their NUM-sponsored MPs were very reluctant to get involved Mm. with this... And so Alan wrote a letter to the New Statesman, which, is, which was published, challenging the NUM-sponsored Labour MPs. Uh, and he says something like, and this is almost verbatim, it, it's something like, if any of the miners' MPs can find any hostility... Uh, then that would be the first I know about it, because I know of none from the actual grassroots mining community. So LGSM was actually predated about 20 years to some extent, you know. So the reason I say that, and Gethin talks about Mattachine Society, you know, these things always kind of get disappeared. Yeah from history yeah. because history almost always is written by the victors and thankfully now there are huge research projects going on all around the world is constantly uncovering all this hidden history so i say that because with a certain amount of humility lgsn's been portrayed and projected as this amazing organization that changed the world and it was only Part of a continuum actually. And I met Alan Horsfall twice. He died about eight years ago, something like that. A lovely man, very modest man. And when I introduced myself to him, I said who I was and about lesbians and gay sporting minors. And, manners, and he, a wry smile came on his face. And he, he said, Oh, I'm, I'm glad you did what you did. Mm. Because in a sense, I think he saw that we tail ended. Yeah. A narrative that he started
0: yeah.
1: and he saw that come through to the most wonderful fruition, which of course was the 1985 TUC and Labour mm. Party conferences when the NUM, following our support for them in the strike, supported us unilaterally. And and that's when the Labour and TUC conferences both adopted gay rights for the first time in its history. And for Alan, that was the fruition of, of everything he'd ever ever wanted. Yeah. So it's for privilege for me to, to meet him and and to be to be able to kind
0: of take that story to yeah. well, what you said. I mean, you both said about you know the I keep not I keep going back to it with the gay switchboard, um, the pamphlets, get in the gay capital. You know, um, and it's interesting because when we think about like you know, quote unquote politics or doing politics, we do often think in terms of massive grand gestures and marches. But what I think is interesting, as you said, in these cases, it's often you know a couple of people yeah. writing a couple of pamphlets, um, which might not seem very dramatic or effective even to the person writing them. It, as you said, it changed your life and things mm. like that. And I think it's really interesting that we, we do keep hold of these things, that even small little gestures like chipping away and things can hopefully lead and change people's minds and, and lead to bigger things happening. So before I forget, I wanted to just talk about, I mean, you've, you've both said that, you know, Geth you're from Hollyhead and then um, Kent and, and Mike, you said you're from Accrington and then you moved to London. Uh, you sort of migrate to London, which is one of the central themes in the film with, is it Keith? Isn't the Keith character? Is that No, what was Joe? it?
2: Joe. Joe, Joe. sorry. sorry yeah. Joe, that's the central Probably.
0: theme. That the seam is the. That's just one of the central themes uh, that is explored through the character of Joe, um, who moves to London and gets involved with LGSM. And off, um, Mike, earlier you were chatting about almost like the universal experience of people, of gay people having to move to sort of big from you know smaller rural areas or into sort of larger metropolises to sort of be themselves. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about. That because that is, it's something that I sort of didn't pick up the, on the yeah. first time you watched the film because it's not something I ever experienced because you know, I take for granted sure. my roots, my family. And,
1: and, and perhaps it's something that's not really been studied enough. That it, It's quite obvious why why, why we do that, yeah, of why course. I did it, yeah, because obviously life's easier in the big city. There's there's going to be more support there. There's going to be more groups there, more pubs, etc., etc., etc. But at the same time, you know, people are leaving their communities. Yes. Yeah. And that's damaging for the community and it's damaging for them it might have been inevitable because i don't know i i don't think i could have sustained living in accrington being gay it just would not have been possible but nevertheless you know as a working class lab moving to to london i kind of missed that identity mm. uh, accrington was solidly working class you know the, there might have been a, a, a bit of a middle class uh, but they were hard to find one little <laughs> section of, of Accrington called Sandy Lane which we thought was Beverly Hills you know and, and, and from a class point of view and I identify uh, yeah. with class politics then you know it, it, I was a bit isolated a lot of the people that I met in London were quite middle class etc but equally I met a lot of other emigres like me, so the Mark Ashtons who was from Port Rush in Northern Ireland and LGSM was very interesting, so, so you've got Gething originating from North Wales, Mark Ashton from Port Rush um, Monty was another activist in it from Eglinton, very near to Port Rush in in, in, in Derry in Northern Ireland Brett uh, from Oldham Brett from Oldham in mm. Lancashire he came from a rough old background. Andy Den, who was a thorough working class scouser, so you, and Robert Kincaid from Scotland. You've got a lot of people who were living in London who were not originally from London, a lot of them from northern working class or Welsh or Scottish working class backgrounds. And LGSM was wonderful if only from that personal point yeah. of view that it brought us all together and we were all socialists as well. So we got a bit, you know, you get a bit cocky in that situation because suddenly these working class people are the ones who've got, do you know what I mean, some numbers and some authority. Yeah.
0: Which is not a not normal. It's not common. common. It's <laughs> no, not it's not common. no, no, because the
1: middle classes understandably <laughs> take over everything. Then yeah. suddenly we got some
2: authority. I mean, yeah. well, certainly for me moving to London was very much moving into primarily a gay men's community. I mean, m- moving to London, I ended up moving initially into um, a gay housing co-op just up the road from here, Pink Triangle Housing, a street with half a dozen what are now phenomenally expensive Georgian houses. <laughs> you know, they, they go for several million And yeah. In those days, we were kind of very run down. Should have bought, should have bought one. Yeah. Um, so we, I, I moved into Pink Triangle and then into another housing co-op um, and very much a kind of... Gay orientated, yeah. I mean, everything was gay. I mean, like kind of. I, I, I practically knew no straight people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a few through the Labour Party group, the trade union. But you know, I I so I ended up working for. Uh, I mean, in the film, my work engaged the word. That's uh, a bit of artistic license. I did work in a bookshop, but it was actually the uh, the bookshop at the London School of Economics, um, where I worked with Ray of Reggie and Ray mm-hmm. in the film. So, I was kind of living and ex- fairly inward-looking mm. gay life and a lot of it was centred on The Bell which is the pub where I guess most of us met it's, it's where we all socialised it's where young lefty queers all, all socialised at the time and it's, it's the pub where Guy Donovan makes that speech which yeah. in the film they use the Royal Vauxhall Tavern but uh, you know that's what, The Bell was where we originally started collecting and uh, It started itself as London's first alternative gay venue didn't it? That's right although well, actually just across the road you've got Central Station and I think the first gay pub I ever went to was what was then the Prince Prince Albert Albert, and Icebreakers was it Icebreakers or friend Icebreakers icebreakers. it was a gay liberation support group yeah they used to to run a gay disco in the basement um, what's now a kind of rather different kind of gay venue (laughs) so it's a kind of sex venue (laughs) so it's a gay sex club and what was you know 40 years ago one of the, the, the first kind of Um, alternative gay uh, night. And then there was the Hemingford Arms just up the road. So those were the kind of places where we all socialised.
1: But, but when you say, getting that you were kind of in this inward looking thing, that you hardly knew any straight people, you were all inward looking, w- wasn't it the fact that, in a sense, there were two things there? One was you could get your rocks off. So yeah, i
3: didn't happen, happen that didn't often,
2: you. but
1: yeah, it was a possibility.
3: Yeah, what <Yeah>, <laughs> part, part was
1: it? From that but the other thing that's more important, really, I suppose, is that consciousness. We were developing
2: consciousness. Yeah, as well. absolutely,
1: so,
2: yes. You know, I mean, I'm an abor- 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 as well, that's what's fascinating to yeah. me got your own institution, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it was very much about institution building, wasn't it? I mean, mm. the lot. I mean, the bell grew out of a um, fundraising event that was initially run for Gay Noise, which was a newspaper, the magazine that was set up in um, Pink Triangle Housing Co-op. The initial issues were produced from thirty-six Huntington Street, um, and that, and that kind of one-off or semi-regular fundraiser turned into what eventually became kind of. Really established gay gay bar, and similarly, the uh, Prince uh, Albert, the Prince Albert, the Icebreakers Disco there. That was a, that was a <laughs> fundraiser for the Icebreakers Counselling Group, which grew out of the GLF Counter Psychiatry Group. So the gay scene, as it was, w- was essentially run by the community, and it, it was taking over straight venues for one night a week or whatever.
0: I read in this Colin Wilson article. Um, which I'm going to hopefully tweet when we release this episode. And it was, it said about attempts, um, what was the relationship with like Great and Council and and attempts to build? Because obviously, you know, the, I guess the film Pride is about, you know, the ultimate gesture of solidarity and the ultimate sort of relationship building between LGSM and the NUM and South Wales miners and things like that. But what was the experience in those early days of, yes, you've got, you know, your own apparatuses and institutions, but. Within London, were with their attempts to build relationships within like the Labour Left and Greater London Council, or sure.
1: can, can I just pick up yeah, some something that yeah. Gethin just mentioned? Then it, uh, you'd say that GLF formed this counter psychiatric group. I mean, that was a really important thing because, of course, homosexuality was classified as a as a mental illness uh, by the World Health Organ- Organisation then, and so you know we had to stand up and just say to that, you know, professional uh, body of people, you're wrong. Yeah. yeah, Stop making this a medical issue. It, it's not, you know, and, and that was a really important thing to. And it wasn't until the 1990s that the World Health, I think it was about 94, that the World Health Organization finally actually Declassified homosexuality as a, as a mental illness. Yeah. One little anecdote as well, we just, before we go on to what you just told me yeah. was, I was also living in a, a gay squat. This one was in Brixton in in South London, um, and <laughs> you know. You want to form a gay liberation movement, you don't go to a library to find a handbook on how to make a gay liberation movement. It doesn't work like that. Or a black liberation movement, or a women's liberation movement, or a disabled liberation movement. There isn't a template. You've got to do it Mm -hmm. yourself. And you say things, and you do things, some of which are good, and they stood the test of time, and they endured, and other things were pure, utter bullshit (laughs) and nonsense. And one of them, in this gay squat in Brixton, was So it's a terraced house, so the bathroom's on the first floor, and um, it's a squat, so there's no carpets. And it had been decided by previous GLFers who'd lived in this squat that having a door on the toilet was bourgeois. <laughs> <laughs> you know where I'm going with this one. Uh, I mean, the shit is a completely normal, natural function, so the door was removed. Now, I got it intellectually... But my sphincter didn't. There's one squeak on that first step of the grocery store staircase upstairs, and I was constipated for a whole year. <laughs> you know, and that's what happens. And of course, that's the same t- t- today with newer liberation movements that people are testing the ways, and inevitably, people do and say and adopt postures yeah. and ideas that are balmy. Mm. Yeah? Not completely, by I mean, there'll be an element of yeah, truth yeah. in it somewhere. I'm not so sure about Tyler doors I think they have <laughs> rightful yeah. place.
2: Sacr- um, sacrosanct.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's only by going through this do you finally hone out a coherent, correct, intelligent interpretation yeah. of, of things.
0: And how important it is though, as well, as you said earlier, to have not just your own institutions, but to have your own analysis and your own intellectual sort of current as well as perhaps... Personified with the counter psychiatry yeah. uh, thing, you have to be confronting things intellectually as well as just. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, tell us about building. I mean, because Gareth, you said you're in the La- you're in the Labour Party and Transport and General, uh, yeah. workers union. So what had been happening in terms of building links with sort of wide left movements in? Not I guess well primarily London, but had there been other forays into other movements?
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess by the late seventies there were. Lesbian and gay groups in Quite a few of the um, white collar trade unions, uh, so the CPSA, Civil Servants Union, NALGO in particular, uh, and National Union of Teachers, um, and again Nigel I think was involved in setting up gay groups in the NUT. So within white collar unions, there, there, there were a number of groups and individuals campaigning for lesbian and gay rights. Um, a lot of this had grown from those kind of early court cases. So. That whole thing about people being sacked for simply being gay, um, wearing badges and such like led to a fight back within trade unions. The argument that this was very much a trade union issue because people were losing their jobs simply for being gay. There was a campaign for gay rights, Uh, there was the Communist Party Gay Rights Committee there was a big debate on the Trotskyist left as to whether this was a kind of bourgeois deviation and the rest of it. Uh, so, at, you know, at that time the Socialist Workers' Party and so forth were dead against self organisation by. Do
1: you want to just explain people. that bourgeois deviation nonsense? No, you can explain. Well, just, you know, <laughs> I It's, I never it, understood. it's amazing of pressure and prejudice, of what marvellous yarns you can come up with. Yeah. So, here's the one that members of the left thought that real proper working-class men yeah were it so facto heterosexual yeah and that homosexuality was really something that uh, festered in public schools mm. and that um, so the public school boys will grow up and they go and uh, use r- soldiers and sailors or rough trade working-class men you know as prostitutes and 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 actually homosexuality wasn't really part of the the, the working class which is utter utter rubbish again yeah and in a similar way there was a racist and a homophobic one that black people uh, black men weren't naturally homosexual this again was a white man's disease so you've got a bit of homophobia thrown in with racism there yeah You know the the human ingenuity of inventing these tropes and these kind of disinformation things is just ingenious.
3: I found it quite interesting because on the train ride down, um, you were reading that article about
0: um, the Soviet Union in the twenties. You know, yeah, how like initially, you know, the Bolsheviks were very progressive, and then Mm Rosa Luxemburg. Yeah, Yeah. and and I think um, there was actually gay, uh, a lesbian marriage in the Soviet Union in the early days, and then it I, was
1: decriminalised wasn't it yeah, yeah. and was then know? in the
0: obviously in Germany with um, your um, man was um and then obviously the Nazis came to power in what 33 and then Stalin came to power and Soviet union and then started giving women medals for having children and actually re homosexuality But um with yeah, sexuality. got a good quote. what's the good quote here? Um, sexuality is intimately linked. <laughs> so it's obviously just, I'm just coming up with this stuff. Not yeah. It's not written down at all. <laughs> <laughs> sexuality is intimately linked to, you know, ruling a middle class fears about social anarchy and revolution. And so whenever there's sort of societal upheaval, there's often a focus on, you know, sexuality as, uh, moral panics emerges because it's a way of if society is changing it often changes in terms of people's sexuality but but as you, as you said Mike it is worth thinking about this is digression but it's worth thinking about sexuality and how it's a social construct and how you know, every society puts these recreates these traditional narratives and myths and stuff to justify
1: and coming uh, back social then, control and you stuff know, yeah. we've got Bolsonaro in yeah. Brazil we've got all these people around the world. Jonathan Harvey, the playwright, did a lovely little play called uh, Canaries, uh, and it's set in the 40s, 80s, and the present day, I think. It's, it's So it's three different time periods. And he uses the Miner's Canary uh, as a title, uh, and his analogy... <coughs> so uh, people who were too young to know this, uh, the Miners used to take Uh, canaries down the pits with them uh, not because they were great bird lovers (laughs) but because they're very sensitive to uh, toxic gases and so if the canary fell off its perch... (laughs) The miners knew to run quick and get out of there because the black damp gas carbon monoxide was coming through, which you you can't smell it or anything carbon monoxide. It's a deadly poisonous gas. And what his analogy was, Jonathan Harvey, in the play, was the way any society treats its homosexual community is indicative of the general health of that community. And I think you're absolutely right. When the societal change, if it moves to the right, our community gets clobbered. I was just thinking how and that's a lot to do with archaic stuff about the church and moral yeah. values and family life and this and the other but it also it's bloody convenient that throughout history in any society the homosexual community is always a minority community mm-hmm. so we're a pretty easy community to 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 beat up both politically and and physically, and what an act of absolute cowardice that is yeah by what actually is as far as I'm concerned inadequate men mm-hmm. yeah who are having to kind of pick on gay men to somehow prove their own masculinity how pathetic is that
0: we was talking about the um the boop uh, homosexuality or homosexual rights or whatever has been um Bourgeois deviation, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, so, tell us about. I mean, was there
2: was there was there sort of hostility from elements to the left then, gethin Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, within the Labour Party, you know, I mean, it took till eighty five and after the miners' strike for the Labour Party to adopt any kind of form of lesbian and gay rights. So people like Neil Kinnock were extremely Antagonistic towards lesbian and gay rights. Uh, most trade unions were certainly all the, the blue collar trade unions were. I mean, there had been some work be, during the sort of early days of GLF. There was a, a woman uh, shop steward in the um, AEU, the uh, Amalgamated Engineers Union, who, who was starting to campaign for lesbian gay rights within the AEU and got some some kind of support from you know kind of f- f- from the factories that she was working in. But on the whole, it would. The left was quite antagonistic. No, well, and, to,
1: and to some extent, it, it was part of a greater thing that, because it was also quite misogynistic. Absolutely, as, yeah. As well. yeah. So the, the two run hand in hand there. And this is that kind of tipping point, you know, the influence of the 1960s, the emergence of liberation movements, including women's liberation and gay liberation, and then that's eventual impact on, on the labour movements and the trade union movement when. Gay men and lesbians were banging on the doors, yeah. saying, "That's our home too." And women generally were banging on the doors, saying, "That's our home too." let us in and listen to us. and it's taken decades, really. I mean, we still we're still a bloody long way away from it. We I can't understand the uh, what was it the Equality Act in yeah. nineteen seventy that was introduced about bringing about equal pay for women. Forty nine yeah. years yeah. later, yeah. it hasn't made any difference. Yeah.
0: But there's still a trope, isn't there? And sections of the left that you know, um, it was—it's a, a distraction. Um, there are other issues now which are deemed to be you know, distractions. Was it Great London Council? London Council? Is that what it was? Yes, so it was, GLC. So GLC was controlled by was it Ken Livingstone and things yeah. at the time? And were they, was it militant?
2: No, no, not no. at that stage. Um, but I mean, Labour won control of. Uh, the GLC. I can't remember what. Sorry, what was the what was the, the the election where Ken took over immediately after the election, but essentially, I mean, Ken Livingstone staged a sort of palace coup uh, immediately after election night and took over the GLC. John MacDonald was also a councillor, so that kind of group around people like Corbyn, Livingstone, John Macdonald, Diane Abbott took over the GLC and started a kind of uh, a much more radical Mm. approach, started using the local government as a way of fighting back against Thatcher. Uh, So for instance, the GLC headquarters which was directly opposite Parliament, they uh, erected a a counter that was showing the number of unemployed. So that was continuously being beamed across the river. um, And they started funding all sorts of community projects, including lesbian and gay projects. So, you know, they funded the lesbian, London Lesbian and Gay Centre and they supported all sorts of things Gallup, mm. the um, gay and lesbian. I always called it gays, gays and Lesbians opposed to the Police, but it wasn't good <laughs> at all. Um, it, w- it was the kind of police monitoring group. And there were other kind of community initiatives that suddenly had money and public support and the rest of it. And that made quite a dramatic difference, I think, really. Mm. You know, and, and I think they make grants available. You have to apply
1: for them and, and justify it. So there's a famous yeah. one with. The- uh, I think some uh, disabled LGBT people put in for a grant for, for a coach so they've got a, a, a day out in a proper, properly equipped coach. And of course, the right wing media got mm-hmm. in on all this and like, oh, it's all are supporting kind of lesbians with one leg and yeah. stuff no. like that. And really nasty. Richard Littlejohn started rubbing his hands. Like yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Re- really nasty stuff. Yes, the, the GLC were quite rightly doing all that. Mm. And now, of course, putting recent austerity cuts that kind of stuff is now embedded in in, you know social security and benefits and so forth that indeed these people you know need support and 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 help and the fact that they're LGBT on top of it say on top of a disability or on top of a race issue is is another layer of complexity that means their needs are even greater and, and therefore you've got to fund them you know to give them an equal footing with other people
0: I think, I think GLC may be why London buses are so good as well, I think it's because they stopped them being, was it under GLC they stopped yeah. them being tended out to privatisation or, I can't remember
1: Well Ken had this mm.
0: flat fare on Sundays
1: didn't he, it was 30p to go anywhere in London mm. and of course as a result of that the buses were full on, on Sundays, that meant that loads and loads of people who were really hard up could travel for the day and it also meant people were spending lots of money so it made lots of Sense, but yeah, I mean, I think the legacy of, of Ken Livingston's GLC on public transport in London, including the bikes, which are—it's uh, a misnomer to call them Boris bikes because actually Boris Johnson, one, Boris Johnson wasn't the person who, who promulgated that. It was Ken Livingston Ken was. bikes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it should be called Ken. And henceforth, PM Ken, Ken's like <laughs> Ken bikes yeah. and GLC. Don't forget, was, a, it was it, I think it was the biggest local authority in the world. It had a budget that was bigger than a lot of small countries mm-hmm. were, so it was an enormously powerful organisation. Education, uh, local education, schools, etc., came under the GLC in a thing called the Inner London Education Authority, ILIA. Uh, and that was the biggest education authority in the world. And it was a global leader in uh, the philosophy and practice of education, had all kinds of amazing research and stuff done. And Thatcher, this friend of General Pinochet, solution to, to, to the, uh, that opposition was to, cut, to it, close it to down, to abolish down. it. So she actually abolished the JLC with it, Iliad as well. So she just closed down one part of democracy. The Tories
0: don't really like democracy. <laughs> they don't need
1: this. it. this. <laughs> it, it, it impedes
0: on markets. I can't imagine what it must be like to be socialists and to try to sort of build links with people who think you're going to be sort of comrades and to be rebuffed I mean I think that must be fairly dispiriting to say the least but I was um, one of the things that we were we, again we chatted to about um, our fair and is raised to an extent in the film I think when um, there's the debate in the shop about should we support the minors and things like that um, I mean we've read that there was a split m- maybe formal maybe informal within the gay community in in the 80s in London between those people who would like to sort of focus inwardly whether you call that autonomy or identity politics or or non-political or non and then there are people like yourselves who are more into building links with other with left wing groups or getting into sort
2: of politics would you say that's a, f- a fair characterisation of the well I'm not sure I'd yeah. characterise it as a split in the gay community because I don't think there was a gay yeah. community I mean no, there yeah. were yeah. um gay people from all sorts of different backgrounds. Um, So there were people like us who on the whole were were fairly young, on the whole were already involved in left-wing politics, involved in trade unions, part of the kind of alternative gay scene. Lots of them were students, lots of them people on on low wages. And I think they immediately took the side of the miners, understood what the issues were and the rest of it. And then there were, you know, obviously, as there are now, lots of wealthy, middle class, upper middle class, upper class gay men whose lives revolve around the opera and um, and spending vast sums of money on clothes and interior design and all the rest of it, you know, who, who saw no connections whatsoever with uh, the miners or who were actively opposed to, you know, I mean, there's a lot of kind of rich upper-class queens who, who supported Thatcher. Mm, yeah. Um
3: I, I thought that was always quite interesting because perhaps ignorantly you look at oppressed groups and you think that the solidarity would be, come from being oppressed groups, but it's, it's, especially in the book it's a lot more to do with uh, along the lines of class, isn't
1: it? That's what I, I like to think. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, it, you know, class is a big elephant in the room. Blair made it more, more or less illegal to, to talk about class um, or socialism. And y- you can't do that, you know, it's not an elephant in the room, it's real. One understands why the right-wing deny class exists. Edwina Currie always makes me laugh in this respect, because she denies that class exists, but she's forever saying, he's, she'd say this about me, I'm sure, he calls himself working class, he lives in Islington, he e- eats quinoa, he even knows how to pronounce it, he's not working class, <laughs> you know. As if that was like Something terribly important By the way If you haven't had quinoa Forget it it's It was a teen Average in it Silver ear yeah, <laughs> like porridge <laughs> and, and that is the elephant In the room And what LGSM did Suddenly Just took the walls Of the room there And said Hey everybody Look at our elephant mm-hmm. And we did have Some lively correspondence with, Within the LGBT community during the time, and there was a freebie newspaper at the time called Capital Gay, and I only found out recently from one of its former editors, uh, Graham McCarroll, that they that he said, oh, we loved you lot, <laughs> uh, because we just incited such lively correspondence. So every time there was an anti-LGSM correspondence, and it was like, I'm trying to think of what, how they would attack us. Oh, basically all miners are homophobes. Yeah. You know, why Why sure. should we support the miners? And, you know, to, to an extent in pockets, that would be true. Of course mm. it would. You know what I mean, it, it, it's a, you're talking about then 170,000, 180,000 miners. Well, obviously some of them are going to be homophobes, uh, but not all of them. And there will be homophobes at every... Mm you know every corner of the world every class every workplace every community whatever so that was a bit of a red herring the other one that used to get thrown at us as well by right wingers or people who just didn't like doing what we're doing is uh, why should you be collecting for the miners because um, uh, you you should be collecting for HIV charities because that was just coming through then uh, 1984-85 that was a Bob Geldof's big thing isn't it Yeah. yeah and what I learned to do Bearing in mind what we talked about, the, what the constituency of LGSM was, that Andy the Scouser, Gethin, the guy from North Wales, Mark Ashton, the guy from Northern Ireland, all working class backgrounds. What I'd learned to, whenever that got thrown at me, would say, before I answer that one, mate, can you tell me what you do for the gay community? And every time that got them, because they didn't bugger all for anybody, they just moaned and, 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 and complained about
0: everybody else.
1: And so I'd just say some. Something unpolite
0: <laughs> and walk away. In 1979, like Thatcher gets elected. So there's a lot of things going on. I mean, how does that impact on your in, on your lives in terms of it?
1: Well, we already knew about Thatcher before 79 because um, she had been uh, the education minister in Heath's government. Yep. I think it was. And she was the one that withdrew free school milk from the Mm. school. So that, you know, the the, the, uh, jingle was Maggie Thatcher, the milk snatcher. Uh, And that, you know, I mean, that was a pretty evil thing to do. I mean, the the economic savings were, were trifling. It was symbolic, that, and so bloody evil. I mean, I, I, I love the way she used to characterise herself as the mother of the nation. Some fit mother, that is, who yeah. withdraws the milk from from from, from, from The mother of postnatal depression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awful. <laughs> uh, so we already well hated her before she came into power, and I remember when she stood on the steps of Downing Street in May 79 coming out with... Uh, that's is uh, it Saint Francis Lassisi's yeah. stuff yeah. to where there's uh, oh, discourse
2: yeah. that's bring yeah. unity. Well, yeah.
1: And and my jaw dropped, I just thought, you liar. <sighs> and also I just do I do remember thinking, what have the British people done? Mm. And then that wonderful song came out that the lunatics had taken all the asylum. <laughs> was that Fun Boy Three? I can't remember yet. And but yeah, it was just it was just insanity. And of course we're still suffering. From that, Mm. 40 years on. Margaret Thatcher, incidentally, was a personal friend of General Pinochet, the more or less fascist dictator of Chile, whose coup lasted 11 hours and ousted a democratically elected left-wing government under Allende. And he replaced it by his dictatorship. Uh, As I say, it lasted 11 hours, that coup completely undemocratic, and it took each years and years and years to get over it. Margaret Thatcher admired Pinochet and was a personal friend of his. What is that about? What, what, what
2: story does yeah, that This tell is a woman who, who branded um, Nelson Mandela a terrorist. A terrorist. A terrorist. Yes. Yes.
3: Okay. The right honourable gentleman with all due respect is a
2: plundering amateur. Well, the, well, the right honourable lady should know all about that. Never, never has a leader of the Conservative Party displayed such gross incompetence.
3: The right, the right honourable gentleman is, with all due respect, a balding
2: Welsh kid, totally unfit for her, the position he does. The right honourable lady, quite frankly, and with all due respect, makes me puke. In fact, she makes the rest
3: of my party puke as well. Uh, Can I just say that this is the sort of debate that strengthens the argument for a third party? Mindless confrontation with no reasoned argument. You hear? A three-party system is the last thing we want. I'm sure the right honourable balding Welsh kit will agree with me. The right honourable fat pompous tart is correct. The right honourable gentleman may be a cretinous buffoon but is just the sort of tiny willy drooling vegetable this country needs in opposition. I agree with the right honourable
1: bitch cow. She
3: may well make me puke but at least when I'm vomiting I have a clear choice ahead of me. I agree entirely with the right honourable little Pratt. We we must give the electors a clear choice. Either the Conservative Party or that bunch of toss over there. Exactly! The two party system has lasted hundreds of years, and if people don't want to vote for us, then they could do a lot worse than vote for those fascist bastards over there. The two idiot, the two idiot system is here to stay! Well, I think you'll find that the Alliance is perfectly well equipped to join that system.